Today, I want to talk about options uh, and uh, uh, I should just say what an option is. Uh, I'll write the word. Uh, it's a contract uh, that has an owner, and the owner of the option contract has rights defined in the contract uh, either to buy or sell some thing, let's say a share of stock, uh, at a specified price and specified date. Okay? So there's two kinds. There's a put and a call. Okay? Uh, a put option is the right to sell. Uh, it's typically a hundred shares, so we'll say a hundred shares of uh, a company, and let's say it's Google. Okay, okay. So uh, the option would have, um, if it was a put option and there was a price, then you would have the right up and well. Uh, you see, there's the exercise price. Also known as the strike, uh, and there's the exercise date. Okay, um, so um, I, I should also emphasize <laughs> that there are two kinds of op of options. There are American, so-called. Uh, and European, so-called, has nothing to do with whether they are in America or Europe, because in Europe they trade both American options and European options, and in America they trade both American options and European options. So it's very unfortunate terminology. Uh, the Ameri what, it, what this means, an American option, <coughs> means the right to exercise the option on any date until and including the exercise date. And with European, it's only on exercise date. So uh, that's what those words mean. So usually we're talking about American options. Uh, and so, if you have an American option, um, American put option on uh, shares of some stock, uh, then you have the right, anytime you feel like it, until the exercise date, to sell that option uh, at the price specified in the contract called the exercise price. Okay? If it's European, you have to wait until the exercise date, and then, um, then you have one day when you can do that. A call option is the right to buy okay, uh, a, a share of stock, or whatever it is, whatever is specified in the option. Uh, and in a traditional option, <coughs> there's, two there's two parties. There's the buyer of the option. And usually we present them from the perspective of the buyer of the option. Uh, the buyer of the option pays a price to buy the option, uh, not to be confused with the exercise price, uh, and then uh, has, depending on whether it's American or European, has until the exercise date to, uh, to exercise the option. But the buyer doesn't have to do anything. You can just do nothing. You buy the option, and if you do nothing, uh, it becomes worthless <laughs> because the only way uh, the option ever gives you value after you buy it is if you exercise it, meaning you say, I will use my right to, to buy or sell. The other party is the writer of the option because it's a contract. It has to be between two parties. So somebody is on the other side. 
Okay, and you can do either one. You can either buy or write an option. Um, okay, so um, if you this, let me make this clear, uh, if you write a call option, then what you are committing yourself to do as the writer, you sign the contract from the uh, the writer's contract, which goes along with the buyer's uh, contract, which provides rights to the buyer. If you write a call option, then you and say it's American, then you are signing a contract, and let's say it's on stock, to deliver 100 shares uh, to the other guy, the buyer, uh, whenever that guy feels like it, uh, and that guy will pay you the contracted price. And so it's not, it doesn't seem like much fun to be a writer of an option because you have, you're just sitting there waiting for this other person to make up uh, his or her mind. Uh, but but there's, a, there's a benefit, namely, you get the money. The, the, the buyer of the option pays you up front for providing this right to the buyer. Uh, and so writers of options uh, write them. Uh, hoping that they expire unexercised, and that's when they make money. If you write an option and the buyer of the option pays you the money up front and then you never hear from the buyer again, then you're in, that's, that's the way you like it. And so you make money by writing options um, and hoping that they don't get exercised. Okay. And of course, you can write a Put option, uh, and that means if you write a put option, you are signing a contract that says that whenever this other guy on the other side, the buyer, decides to, that guy will uh, will sell you a hundred shares at the specified price. Okay, so. Um, Again, you're laying yourself open to whenever this guy wants to. Uh, you've got to receive 100 shares uh, and, uh, uh, and pay the money. Okay. Now, uh, these kinds of contracts are very old. Uh, and in fact, we had a conference uh, over the weekend at the Yale School of Management uh, on. Uh, it was a very interesting conference. I've never experienced anything quite like it. Uh, maybe I should put the uh, website up for you to look at. Uh, there's a book. Oh, it's called The Great Mirror of Folly, written in 1720 uh, about the stock market. Uh, and the Beinecke Rare Book Library has a copy of it. Uh, they're very rare. Uh, uh, about the stock market crash of 1720. Um, did you know that there was a big stock market crash in the year 1720? Um, what was happening in New Haven in 1720? Well, I know one thing that was happening in 1720. You in New Haven, I'm guessing, I'm pretty, pretty sure, you had some pretty angry investors. Uh, who lost uh, everything in the stock market. Uh, but it couldn't have been the U.S. stock market, which wasn't created yet. Uh, this, the crash of 1720 was primarily in Paris and London, also less or so Amsterdam. Uh, those were the financial centers of the world. So I'm speculating. There must have been someone here in New Haven. Uh, probably Yale University <laughs> lost in this crash. I don't know. Uh, must have been someone here who lost. It was a huge and devastating stock market. And this is the first one, actually, the first stock market crash. Uh, and so we had a lot of fun at this conference. And I, I'm, it just relates to options. I'll tell you why it relates to options, because people were writing options galore uh, in 1720 on stocks. So the, the the book the great so there's a web if you search on great mirror of folly uh, on the uh, web 
it'll come up with our conference uh, and, and proceeding. And since this book, uh, you know, copyrights expire after uh, what's well, a complicated formula, but in less than a century. So this is all public domain. So Yale has it up on the web. You can read the whole book. Unfortunately, it's written in Dutch, but <laughs> uh, which might deter some of you. <laughs> but it has lots of pictures, and we had great fun. So at this conference, um, the um, it was the most interdisciplinary conference I've ever seen uh, because we had professors from the art history, comparative literature, finance, economics, <laughs> psychology, uh, and we had scholars from all over the world who knew about the year 1720, uh, including a lot of Dutch, uh, Dutchmen who were here. Uh, the, uh, but anyway, the, the highlight of it was, uh, they sh one highlight for me, was it had a, we saw a picture of an option from this time, uh, an option contract to buy stocks uh, from Amsterdam. Uh, and it showed, it was a printed form. They had printed forms back then, at least in Holland they did. So a printer had printed up with blanks to fill in. There's a place to fill in the exercise price and the exercise date. I don't know whether it was American or European <laughs> at the time, but I'm sure if it was American, they didn't call it an American option <laughs> in 1720. They didn't even call them options, because it's all in Dutch, so I don't know. Uh, it was some other word, not options. Uh, but I'm just uh, saying this because the, uh, the other interesting thing about 1720 <laughs> is that uh, they didn't make the same distinction between investing and gambling that we do now. So right now, uh, anyone on Wall Street is very loath to be, have any suggestion of uh, connection with gambling. Uh, and so, but back then, they didn't care. And so lots of uh, stocks would have lotteries attached, or uh, there would be all kinds of, something called a tontine, uh, where a group of investors would invest in something, and then all the money would go to the last one to die. Well, after all of them died but one, uh, that's a sort of gambling. I don't know what sense it makes, but they did that. Uh, but uh, I remember an uh, old story on, uh, I, I just heard this somewhere, from the 1920s. Two brokers on the New York Stock Exchange floor were talking to each other, and one of them says, I'll bet you $5 that the market's going to go up. And then a senior man then scolded him and said, are you betting? Uh, you know, you will be thrown off this floor permanently if I hear that word again. Uh, so that attitude has persisted, that investing should be distinguished from gambling. And I suppose there's good reason for that, because gambling instincts can take hold of us. Uh, and investing has a good purpose. Uh, unfortunately, our emotions can carry us away from the good purpose. And gambling is not uh, investing. Uh, back in 1720, the distinction was not so clear. Uh, and this event was so, uh, it got, the reason they call the book Great Mirror of Folly is that the event got totally crazy. I mean, people were squandering their life fortunes. Uh, well, I'll tell you one more story. We had a great time at this conference because this book, Mirror of Folly, includes plays that were written in 1720 and performed in Amsterdam about the crash, about the stock market crash. So um, uh, the organizers of this conference got some students from Saybrook College to perform one of the plays from Great Mirror of Folly. Is anyone here from Saybrook? Okay. You weren't in the, I didn't see you there, though. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there was a scene in the play where a young woman is being told by her father that he intends for her to marry a very promising young man <laughs> who is speculating in stocks and will soon be rich. And she is very skeptical about being forced to marry. Uh, she has somebody else in mind. Uh, and, but the father says, that other young man is worthless. He'll never amount to anything. But she stuck by her guns and insisted that I will never marry a man who's in love with the stock market. Um, we don't know what happened because it's all fictional. But as we know, the whole stock market crashed, so she was right in two counts, <laughs> probably. Anyway, that's all about op options are very old.
uh, and uh, but they've emerged more recently as very important um, contracts, and in particular, uh, what, what they didn't have in 1720, in fact, they didn't have anywhere until recently, uh, is uh, an options exchange. So uh, the problem with a traditional option is that it's a contract between two parties, okay? Uh, and if you write, a, uh, if you buy an option, you're at the mercy of this other person. So if you buy an option that was uh, written by a broker, as they were in 1720, uh, what if the other guy doesn't? Uh, he just skips town. He's gone. You bought this option to either buy or sell, and then when the date comes, you can't find this guy. So what do you do? <laughs> you obviously were um, cheated out of your money. So uh, we created. Uh, that was a problem until 1973, um, when the first options exchange opened. Well, I think there may have been ways of dealing with the problem, uh, but not uh, before '73. But uh, this is the first uh, options exchange, Chicago Board Options Exchange, which was a spin-off of the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, and uh, now what they did is they organized a central marketplace for st uh, standardized options. Options used to be written. For whatever exercise date anybody wanted, uh, you know, it was, it, it, there was no uh, there was no standardization. It's like f an options exchange is like creating a futures market when you only had a forward market in the past. So uh, they started trading options on U.S. stocks in 1973, and they require that the writer. Uh, the writer of a naked call has to put up margin. Okay, what is a naked call? If, if you write a call, you are standing ready to sell a hundred shares to the buyer whenever that buyer decides, if it's American, to, to do that. But uh, uh, if you're naked, if you don't own the hundred shares. Well, one way you can do is you can uh, you can show that you own a hundred shares, uh, so there's no way that you could fail to uh, deliver. But uh, if you're naked, then you are required to put up margin, and the margin is uh, an amount that was enough so that if you fail to deliver, the CBOE could access your margin account and buy the shares on the market to sell. To the uh, the buyer, and there'd be enough money to do that, uh, and so the margin requirement for the writer uh, holds, makes the contract secure, so that there is really no counterparty risk with options uh, purchased on an options exchange. Now there's many options exchanges, but the CBOE I'm just listing it was was the first. Uh, so uh, now uh, futures exchanges sell options on futures. Uh, that's the same thing as an option on a stock, but instead of uh, a stock contract, it's a futures contract. So uh, and that would be done at uh, at the CME Group, which is a futures exchange. But that's. Uh, uh, that's just we're just talking about where you can ish do these things. So uh, did I under explain the uh, concept of options? Well, th let me maybe I should go through uh, the um, see, what is my okay. I, I have here a plot illustrating um, a call option. Okay, uh, on. On the um, vertical, on the horizontal axis, I have stock price. Um, there it is. Okay, that's zero dollars a share, five dollars a share, ten dollars a share, and I'm showing it up to forty-five dollars a share. Okay. 
now, I'm going to illustrate the intrinsic value of an option with a $20 strike price. Now, the option would be typically for 100 shares, but I'm going to describe it as if it were an option to buy one share. Okay, so that would be one one hundredth of a of a typical option. Okay, so this broken straight line is what we call the intrinsic value of the option, which is the money you could get if you exercised it right now. Okay, if you if you decided if, if well, well we'll never have intrinsic value negative because you wouldn't <laughs> exercise. Um, so let me explain what this means. Suppose you own an option with an exercise price of $20, all right, and the price of a share is $15. What is the value of that option today, the intrinsic value? Well, it's nothing because the option gives me a right to buy a share at $20, but hey, I can buy it in the stock market for $15, so I would never exercise the option today, right? It, uh, it would be worthless. It would be, it would be worth minus $5 <laughs> if I exercised it today because I would be paying $20 for something I could get for $15. But I'm not going to call it minus five. I'm going to call it zero because you just you won't exercise it. Right? So if the uh, stock price is below the exercise price, I have a value. This on the vertical axis is the intrinsic value of the call. I have to distinguish it between actual value. Uh, uh, in this isn't the price that the mark that this is quoted for the option. This is what it would be worth if you exercised it today, if it were. Uh, but you know, the option has value beyond its intrinsic value because even though it's worthless today, it might be worth something in the future. And well, I'll come back to that. But this is just I'm just talking about intrinsic value, right? Now, what if the stock price is 30 today? What is the value of the option? The intrinsic value. Well, it's it's going to be ten, obviously, right? Because you, if you exercise it today, you're buying the stock for twenty dollars, and you can sell it today for thirty dollars on the stock market. So the difference is ten dollars. So this line here, it doesn't look like a forty. This is a forty-five degree angle here. Doesn't look like it, but that's what it is. It has a slope of one. So that's how it's very simple. The, ex, the intrinsic value for a call. Is just a broken straight line. It breaks at the exercise price. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more jargon. In this region, we say the option is out of the money. That means exercise today, it would be worthless. Uh, and this one right here is called at the money. If the stock price is equal to the exercise price. Then the the, the uh, stock we call the option at the money, and if for a call, uh, and uh, here if the uh, stock price is above the exercise price, we say it's in the money. All right, and this line goes off to infinity. I just stopped it there. Uh, that's straightforward, right? The, uh, you, you uh, but anyway, th this does illustrate something about options that. Uh, is different from anything we've discussed before. This is a broken straight line, not a straight line. All of our talk about um, portfolios to date has been linear. When you combine stocks, you are uh, making your portfolio respond linearly to the return of any one of the stocks in the portfolio. But this is nonlinear because we have a break, and that's what options do. Uh, so um, there, it's nonlinear finance. Some people are, are confused about what options really are. Uh, so, so often people say, "Well, if, if I buy a stock option, that means I can make up my mind later whether I want to buy and sell." And so, uh, hey, uh, I'm just getting the right to uh, be indecisive or to. <laughs> well, think of it this way: I haven't made up my mind whether I really want to invest in options or not. So I'll buy uh, in stocks right now. So I'll buy an option, and that gives me the right to buy. Well, you know, you could say that, and a lot of people think that way. Like a company will think, we're trying to decide whether we want to uh, uh, build the shopping center. So we'll buy an option on the land underlying wh where we would build the shopping center, and we'll think more about it and decide whether it's a good idea to build the shopping center. 
Well, that you could do that, but there's there's something a little bit misleading about that reasoning, because whether whether or not you decide to build the shopping center, if you buy an option on the land, you will always exercise it if it's in the money on the exercise day, whether you build the shopping center or not, right? Suppose you, you, you couldn't decide whether to build a shopping center and you bought an option on land. And then someone comes in and says, well, we have to make up our mind today. Uh, the, land, the option is exercising, is expiring. If we don't exercise it today, it's worthless. So what do you discuss at your meeting? You don't discuss whether we're going to build the shopping center or not. That's irrelevant. You discuss what can we sell the land for. And if we can sell it for more than the exercise price, we will always exercise it, right? So there's no, uh, it, it, it's, the assumption in finance is that all m options that are in the money on the exercise date are exercised. And there's no choice. The word option might be misleading <coughs> because, uh, I mean, you could choose to be dumb and, and <laughs> not exercise it, but that's not what it's about. On the other hand, options really are central to our are thinking about a lot of things. Um, I give you an example of an option that you might not consider an option. Uh, and this is the option to marry somebody. <laughs> and so um, sometimes people will complain that their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, cannot commit, right? <laughs> uh, we've been going out for three years. It's time that we get married. Uh, but this person, the other, the counterparty, <laughs> cannot uh, seem to decide. But actually, uh, one view of it, of that situation, could be that this person is just better schooled in finance than the other. Um, because one principle of finance is that you should never exercise an American call early, <laughs> right? I'm not this cynical about relationships. I'm, I'm just telling you a story that comes to mind. Uh, you never want to, I'll come back to that, you never want to exercise an American call early. So that's why there isn't that important distinction between a European and American. But just in the, in the, in the, in the case of relationships, uh, suppose your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend really wants to marry you and uh, is, is still giving you time, then you instinctively know you should wait as long, I'm saying not really, but I'm saying in terms of theory, you should wait until the last day when this other person says it's now or never. Uh, because there's always exercise, there's always option value, there's always a chance. Um, maybe that will come clearer. Uh, I don't know if you like my analogy. I'm not cynical about these things, <laughs> as some people are. Uh, yeah, Peter. This is a call option up here, but this is a call. I, I'm going to show you a pit, but we'll go ahead. What, what arbitrage? Uh, see the price. I'm going to come back to that. The price of the option will always be above that line. Uh, so there's no arbitrage. There are possible. It depends on if the price is wrong. There are arbitrage. Let, let me come back to that. I mean, uh, this is a put option. This is intrinsic value for a put option because it's the opposite of a of a call. Uh, if the strike price is 20 and the stock price is selling for 15, then uh, you can see that it's in the money, it's, uh, right? Because you can make $5 by exercising. Uh, you, have, uh, you have the right to sell it for 20, but you can buy it in the market for 15. So you buy it for 15 and sell it for 20 and you make $5. But on the other hand, up here, if the stock price is $30, you have the right to sell it for 20. Well, that's worth nothing, right? I, I can sell it for 30 in the market. So, uh, but then what, uh, 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 let's see, do I have a, let me, let me jump to this. This isn't exactly the order that I wanted to do it, but uh, the, uh, and this has to do with arbitrage, as you were saying. The, um, the price in the market should always be greater than the intrinsic value until the exercise date, the last day. For an American, well, e even for American or European, but let's let's talk American, a moment. Uh, th this pink line is my price for the option, uh, and I, we'll talk about how we get that line from theory. But 
price, if, if the, let's say if it's an American option and it's got time to go, let's say the exercise date is not for another year, okay, uh, and it's out of the money, the price of a share is only $15, but the exercise price is $20, that option is still worth something today, right? It's not worthless. It would be worthless if you exercised it today, but hey, you're not going to exercise it today. The reason it has value is that the price might rise above $20 sometime over the next year. And so it, uh, the, you have a, a chance of making money in it. So that means the price of the option is always going to be worth more than the price uh, of the stock. Or it's always going to be worth more than intrinsic value. What about at the money? An at the money option, where if the price of a share is 20 and the option uh, and the exercise is 20, exercise it today, it's worthless. But it has to be valuable because 50 50 chance the stock price is going to go up. Uh, and so you have a good chance of making money on it. So uh, th it's going to be worth it's going to be worth a lot more than than uh, this one was down here because we're at the money you know we're, it, any little jostle upward is going to put it in the money so there's a big chance that this will become in the money so it has real value whereas down here the option doesn't have much value because it would take a big price move to put it in the money and then what about up here even when they're in the money they're worth more. <laughs> Than, uh, than uh, intrinsic value. And you kind of wonder, well, why would that be? Uh, well, it's because this thing is better than owning uh, the stock. Say, say, let's say at this point, when the stock price is 25, I'd rather own the option than to own uh, a share minus $20 because the option can't fail me as much as the share can. The share minus $20 could be negative in value before the exercise date, but the worst that can happen to my option is it would be worth nothing. And so, now the arbitrage, Peter, that you were referring to, is the arbitrage. Uh, what if the price were below this line? Maybe that's what you were thinking. What if the option price? What if the stock price is 30 and the option is selling at five? If it's an American option, I have an immediate arbitrage, right? I buy. Uh, what is it? Uh, I, if it's a call option, uh, I would buy the option for $5, I would exercise it and sell for $30, and I'll make money instantly. And so that can't happen. We can't have the option price selling for less than intrinsic value. Uh, so uh, uh, the, you know just from arbitrage that that pink line is always above the, uh, the, the solid line. Moreover, there's another uh, uh, arbitrage relation which I didn't realize uh, show on the chart. But if we draw a 45-degree line here from the origin, that's plotting the stock price against the stock price. All right, it has a slope of one and it comes out of the origin. No option can be worth can be priced up above that 45-degree line above here. In other words, an option can never sell for more than the stock. Does that sound obvious? Uh, why would you pay? Uh, if the share is <coughs> selling for $25, why would I pay $30 for the right to buy it at $20? Obviously, it's ridiculous. The, the, op the stock itself is an option to buy the share at a zero exercise price. So it has to be worse to have a positive exercise price. Okay, so um, now I wanted to stress the put call parity relation. Uh, and this is another arbitrage uh, thing that. Um, the put option price, arbitrage, the absence of arbitrage opportunities implies that the put option price minus the call option price equals the present value of the strike price. That's discounting it from this exercise date to the present, plus the present value of any dividends coming between uh, today and the exercise date minus the price of the stock. And this has to hold because uh, if it didn't hold, there would be an arbitrage opportunity. So uh, the put, let me, let me just show you why. This diagram is supposed to explain that. Uh, I've got here the, uh, the, the intrinsic value of the call, which is the yellow line, and this is an intrinsic value of a put. We've got them both at the same exercise price, all right? 
And then I've shown here the stock price in the blue line. Stock price against stock price is just a 45 degree line, a line with a slope of 1. Well, you notice that if I were to buy a call and write a put, that's the same thing as shorting a put, I would have a combined portfolio with just those two. I would have uh, the yellow line here, and I'd have minus the pink line here, right? I would have a parallel straight line that looks just like the stock price, just shifted down. So if I buy a call and short a put, or write a put, it's the same thing as owning the stock minus the exercise price. And so uh, that's, that's what we have in the uh, put-call parity relation. So that we're taking account of uh, dividends. That diagram didn't show the fact that stocks will pay, might pay dividends between now and the exercise date. Uh, but you can see what I was just saying. Well, I've got it. I said call minus put. Well, this is put minus call uh, minus the price of stock. I, I have a minus sign in front of everything here, but it, it's just the, what that diagram shows. So what put call parity means is that we only need a theory of either call prices or put prices, and then the other one falls right out of put call parity. Okay. All I need is a theory of call prices, so we will just forget about puts, and we'll just talk about calls from, from now on. And then if, if I give you a problem to ask you, what is the put price, what is the price of a put, you would go in and calculate the price of a call, uh, and then uh, calculate oh, we, we, the put option price. We'll put this on the right-hand side of the equation. The put price would equal the call price plus the present value of the strike price plus the present value of dividends minus the price of the stock. So, that, so, so that, that makes it very easy. All we have to do is worry about calls. Um, and so uh, where am I? OK. So uh, the question for financial theory is, what determines this pink line? We, we, you agreed that it should be above intrinsic value. As, as it, the option gets closer to expiration, as time moves on and the exercise date is getting closer and closer in time, this pink line is going to go down, down, down. And on the last day, it hits the intrinsic value. And so, uh, but what, what is it before the exercise date? So um, I'm going to start with um, uh, a theory which illustrates how we calculate these things. Uh, but this is a theory that uh, uh, applies to us. So, so that we can understand it easily, it applies to a, a stripped-down situation. Well, I'm going to derive the price of an option uh, under the assumption that uh, it's very simple. There's only one period between now and exercise. It's, an, um, it's a European option. We're, we're going to exercise it in one. We have an exercise date of one period. Uh, and also under the restrictive assumption, and this is for pedagogical purposes, just to simplify option <coughs> theory, that the stock price, S is the stock price today, okay? And the stock, this stock is very special because uh, next period it can have only two values. It's S times U if the stock goes up, U stands for up, and it's S times D. If the stock price goes down, uh, and what I'm saying, what's arbitrary here is I'm saying that there's only two possible prices for the stock next period: SU or SD. Um, that's not real world because, as you know, there's all kinds of infinite number of possible prices next period. But again, this is just—I think that we should be able to figure out what the price of a call option on this stock should be worth. Uh, it's very simple. Well, it's, it, it's, I say it's very simple, but the people who invented this won the Nobel Prize for this. <laughs> so I, won't, uh, I don't want to make it. This wasn't so simple uh, in the history of financial thinking. But anyway, so do you understand the situation that we're proposing in? It's just like there's this very <coughs> funny stock that we know for some reason, we know that S is the price today. And next period, when the option uh, exercise date is, its price is either going to be SU or it's going to be S, S times U or it's going to be S times D. Okay, and then there's an interest rate, and we can both borrow and lend at this riskless interest rate. 
So what should the option be worth? Uh, okay, so in this case, uh, I'm going to call C the current price of the call uh, today. Uh, this is before now. This is before uh, the exercise date. So the price of the call is going to be worth more than the intrinsic value. Uh, I'm going to call C sub u the value of the call next period if the price is up, and C sub d the value of the call next period if the price is down. Okay, uh, that we—that's the thing that we read off of those broken straight lines, right? So CU would be, you know, the uh, stock price minus if it's the uh, stock minus the exercise price if it's in the money. We know that in advance because we already know what the two possible prices are next period. So we already know what the two possible option values are next period. This is the intrinsic value up. If it's up, and this is the intrinsic value if it's down. All right? And we'll call E the strike price of the option, the exercise price of the option. Is everything clear here? It's just such a very simple world. I'm just saying um, there's only two possibilities. It's a, it's a very simple world. Uh, and, and it's only one period between now and exercise, so it's very simple. Now, what I'm going to say, it, it, it's gonna, we're going to develop an arbitrage theory of options, and we're going to say that you want to, uh, you'll take any profit opportunity that's riskless. <coughs> and it ought to be possible to get a riskless profit opportunity here uh, by investing both in the stock and the option, because there's only two possible values for the stock, and you've got both a stock and an option. There must be a riskless portfolio, right? Because the price of the option depends only on the price of the stock uh, on the exercise date. And so what I'm going to do is get an optimal hedge ratio, A H, uh, that, um, that makes my portfolio. I'm going to form a portfolio of the stock and the option. And I'm going to put them together so that I have a riskless portfolio. All right? And that's what I'm going to do. And out of that is going to fall a value for the price of the option. So this is what you want to do, okay? Uh, we're looking for a riskless profit opportunity. Let's consider this. We're going to write one call and buy H shares, okay? And I'm going to pick H so that I have no risk at all. And it's easy to see how you do that. Because we already know, before the uh, exercise date, we know that if the price goes up, it will be worth UHS. My, my portfolio, if I have H shares, the H shares will be worth UHS, right? U is, US is the price. H shares will be worth UHS. Uh, okay, but I've written one call, so uh, this will be worth UHS minus the, the uh, price of a call. Uh, similarly, if the price stock if the stock price goes down, then uh, this is the value intrinsic value of the call. Then uh, next period on the exercise date, the portfolio will be worth DHS minus uh, C sub D. All right. So let's choose H so that the two are the same. And uh, all I have to do is set this equal to this and solve for H. And that gives me the optimal hedge ratio. And so H is equal to C sub U minus C sub D all over U minus D times S. Uh, and now it's very simple to get to option pricing. Is that if I can form this portfolio with, uh, where I have um, uh, one call and eight shares in the portfolio, uh, it's a riskless portfolio. And so it has to earn the riskless rate of interest. That's what no arbitrage assures. It can't be possible to get a riskless portfolio that earns either more or less than the riskless rate. Because if, if that did happen, I would have a, I would have a riskless opportunity, uh, a, a ability to earn more than the riskless rate with no risk. And that, that's contrary to arbit uh, uh, arbitrage. So. Uh, the return on since you you invested HS minus C in the portfolio, the return on it 
the total value of it has to equal 1 plus the riskless rate times Hs minus c. Uh, and if you substitute in <laughs> for Hs minus c, you find out that it equals this. Uh, and uh, substitute for H into this, and you get the price of the call today. And that's a, that's, it's simple algebra, but there it is. So that's the arbitrage theory call option price. Uh, that might be less than intuitive to you, but you see that it was very simple <coughs> arguing that got us there. We merely said the, the way to think about options is that options move with the stock price, um, and uh, they're, they're perfectly correlated with the stock price over this interval, because if the stock price goes up, you know you've got C sub, uh, C sub U. If the stock price goes down, you know you've got C sub D. So you have only one source of uncertainty, but you have two assets. So you can put them together to eliminate risk. And if you put them together that way, they have to earn the riskless rate. And you just solve for it, and you get this uh, value for the call option. This is the ins inherent insight that Black and Scholes uh, came up with in their uh, classic uh, 1973 paper on option pricing, which I'll come to. But uh, this has to be the price of the call option in this simple world. Uh, otherwise, it would be arbitrage. The interesting thing about this is that there are no probabilities in this formula. What's in this formula? I've got the riskless rate. I've got intrinsic value. I've got the, the uh, difference between the price and the two circumstances, but nothing to do with probabilities. And this puzzled people. People thought, well, doesn't the price of an option have to depend on the probability that it will come in the money? If it's an out-of-the-money option, don't I weigh the probability? But it's not in this formula. Uh, you might say it's implicitly in the formula, because the relationship of S to uh, SU and SD involves probabilities, but it's not in this formula. So Black and Scholes, in their famous paper, used this kind of reasoning to get uh, to the, the standard option contract, which uh, option formula. And uh, I'm not going to derive it, because it, it, the mathematics is quite a bit more difficult, but it's exactly the same logic that I just went through with the binomial option pricing formula. Uh, and so this is one of the uh, most famous um, uh, um, formulas in all of finance. Uh, what Black and Scholes did is, under certain assumptions uh, about the stochastic properties of stock prices, and under the assumption of no arbitrage opportunity, they came up with a formula that an option price should uh, follow uh, if, uh, if there's no arbitrage. So uh, I'm just going to present their formula, and then we'll think more about <coughs> options. But um, now, it, the Black-Scholes formula, called T the time to exercise, uh, before I just said it was, it, when we talked binomial, I just had. Um, I said it was one period hence, but now we're allowing the exercise date to be any distance in the future. Uh, so t is the time to, uh, to the exercise date. And this is uh, for our European option, although it's often used to ap apply to American options as well. Uh, and we'll call sigma squared the variance of the one period price change. Okay? Uh, and n, n of x is the Cumulative normal distribution function, uh, which you can find on Excel. It's, it's called normdist. Uh, <coughs> uh, <coughs> and so uh, I, I don't want to get into these uh, details. This is the formula that Black and Scholes uh, uh, won the Nobel Prize for. Actually, Bla uh, Black uh, died at a uh, relatively early age from uh, throat cancer. Uh, he was a heavy smoker, and people don't do that anymore, so one risk uh, is over. But um, uh, Scholes won the Nobel Prize for this. They don't award that posthumously, but this little formula. It says the price of a call uh, is equal to the stock price times n of d1 
minus the exercise price times n of d2, where d1 is given by this expression and d2 is given by this expression. So um, uh, that might not be intuitive to you. We could spend a couple of lectures making that more intuitive, but I, I'm just going to stop with that formula now. But that's the formula that I used back here to make this pink line. I, just I had to plug in a value for a sigma squared and t, um, but I did that, and I used the Black-Scholl formula. So the Black-Scholl formula does what we sort of think it should. The price of an option should be greater than the intrinsic value everywhere. Um, but uh, it's uh, But here's the exact equation. Um, so this is one of the most famous equations in finance. It might even be on your, if you have a financial calculator, you might have a key that you can press. Uh, it's already on your laptop, so you don't even know it, probably. <laughs> Maybe, depending on what kind of programs you have. Uh, but it's easy to compute in Excel. You just have to use this norm dist. Uh, this uh, cumulative normal distribution function is not something you can do by hand. You have to use a because uh, uh, it, it would involve uh, an, uh, an integral that uh, doesn't have an analytic solution, but uh, you can get it on on Excel. Uh, so um, now what, uh, the, the 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 critical problem with the Black-Scholes formula, however, is getting some of these parameters that have to go into it. And the tough one is sigma squared. Most of the other things we know, if, if you're trying to actually price an option using Black-Scholes, uh, S we already know. That's, that's just the stock price. E is the exercise price. We know that. That's, that's written in the option <coughs> contract. T is the uh, time to expiration date. We know that. That's written in the contract. R is the riskless interest rate. Well, that's easy to tell. That's just quoted <coughs> in the market. There's only one thing that remains that's tough, and that's sigma squared. That's the variance of the stock price. Uh, Black-Scholes says you have to know how variable the stock price is to price an option. Uh, and intuitively, uh, you, you can see, it. not it obvious that the, the more variable the stock price the more valuable the option is, right? If the, if the variance were zero, then the option would just be the intrinsic value, right? Uh, because there's no chance for the stock to do anything unexpected. So if it's out of the money and, and variance is zero, the option is worthless. If it's in the money and the variance is zero, then it's worth something, but it's only worth the intrinsic value. If sigma squared is zero, the price can't move anywhere. So there's no problem. Uh, as sigma squared increases, the option gets more and more valuable. If it's out of the money, it's getting more and more chance to come into the money. Uh, and so that's in the formula. So the key variable in the Black-Scholes formula is the variance of, of, um, of, option, um, of, of the underlying stock price. Uh, and that's the, that's the kicker. That's the hard part. People who trade options use the Black-Scholes formula, but there's a problem. And the problem is you've got to plug in a number for sigma squared. So what number should I plug in? Well, you might say, let's take historical numbers, all right? Uh, I know pretty much what the variance of stock price changes is. Let's use the historical variance. So I wanted to show you the um, historical variance of stock price. <laughs> I have it, since I like history, I go all the way back to 1871. So what I did to compute this chart is I took the S&P composite, or S&P 500 index, back to 1871. This is my spreadsheet, which is on the web uh, on, under our classroom materials. Uh, and I took a six-month moving average of six-month changes, uh, uh, well, six-month standard deviation of the percentage price change for every month from 1871, July, to April of 2008. Uh, and the, the important thing to understand here is that the variance is not constant through time. 
it moves around. There are high variance periods for stock prices and low variance periods. I like to look at this picture because it's interesting. The first thing that is interesting is that overall, the market has been remarkably consistent for over 100 years, right? The variance back in the uh, you know, 19th century doesn't look any different. Nothing has changed in 130 years. The market has always been volatile. There's only one thing that jumps out at you when you look at this picture, and that's these numbers in here, right? You notice those <laughs> numbers in the middle? That was the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, and uh, something went really haywire in the financial markets in the Depression. This is 1929. It wasn't so much 1929. Well, remember, this is a six month, it's a lagging six month. So, where does it, maybe the 1929 crash is here or somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but um, something went really haywire after 1929, and the markets got extraordinarily volatile for a while. Uh, that was a crisis period in American history that shows up really well on this picture. But since then, nothing much has happened. Uh, it's interesting to look recently. Th this doesn't look very important. It shows how important our lifetimes are in the broad sweep of history. <laughs> but uh, your lifetimes are from uh, in this region right here, right? Uh, but th uh, the thing that's interesting is that we have been recently in a very low volatility period for the stock market. This is around 2003. We were in a high volatility period in the 1990s. Nothing like in the Great Depression, but high in the 90s. And then volatility just collapsed, and the markets were the deadest and dullest place to be in the world, stock market. Um, and uh, partly I think this is because our, we were who knows why this was? I, I'm going to throw out a wild suggestion. It's because we were distracted by the housing bubble. And all talk, after the stock market peak in 2000, lots of people just lost interest in the market, and all of their speculative enthusiasm was focused on housing, and the stock market was kind of forgotten. There has to be at least an element of truth to that story. But something has been happening lately. Look how much volatility is shooting up now. This is because of the world financial crisis that we're in. But if you look at this picture, it doesn't look like the world financial crisis is very important uh, in compared to historical events so far um, that we've seen in the past. Now, I want to define what we call implied volatility. Uh, what what the, you can do with the Black-Scholes formula is it, it, it requires that you input sigma squared to calculate what the price of an option should be. Well, why don't we take what the price of the option is and work backwards to figure out what volatility is implied by the price? You see what I'm saying? You can solve, you can turn the Black Scholes, the Black Scholes formula gives the price of the option in terms of sigma squared. Well, I can turn it around because I know what the market price of the option is. They're traded on the CBOE. Uh, so I would take the market price of an option and turn it around and get what the implied volatility is from Black-Scholes. And uh, the, the, the CBOE does this for you because they trade S&P 500 options, and they have it on their website, uh, and it's called VIX. Uh, uh, so I have VIX there. That's their volatility index. Uh, and the CBOE was created in 1973. Uh, unfortunately, their series doesn't, it goes only back to uh, 1986, um, but it's been going for a long time. You can't get implied volatility back to 1871 because, although there were options <coughs> traded back then, there was no or organized market. You can't get a consistent series of prices of options going that far back. So you can't get implied volatility. Maybe you could do it if you got some records from some broker and find some options, but I, it would, I don't know, it would be hard. So our, our um, implied volatility only goes back, uh, 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 that's a little over uh, 20 years. But the interesting thing is, I have plotted here both the implied volatility over that period and the actual volatility. And you see that they line up fairly well. So this shows the uh, strength of the Black-Scholes formula. Black-Scholes does seem to be Pricing options uh, 
well enough because the implied volatility, while it's not perfectly exactly equal to the actual volatility, it's close. And so uh, we can see that uh, the formula makes some, some sense. Uh, I think, yeah. So I, I just wanted to uh, conclude this lecture by um, talking about um, the uh, effort we've made to get um, single family home price options going uh, <coughs> uh, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So, uh, as I told you, I, I and some of my colleagues have been campaigning. Uh, with futures exchanges to create futures markets for home prices and ultimately for commercial real estate prices and other economic variables. Uh, so we went to, uh, we, we, we started campaigning almost 20 years ago, but recently uh, we have um, t been talking with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and they created futures markets for single family homes in. Uh, May of 2006, using the S&P Case-Shiller indexes, uh, and uh, so uh, when that, that was our objective. But when we went there, the CME said, "Well, why don't we start options as well? Options on futures." Uh, so we have a futures contract, and they launched options on home prices, uh, and you can see all these things on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange website, uh, and. Uh, uh, what we have now are both puts and calls for 10 U.S. cities. Uh, unfortunately, they're not doing well and not selling well, but uh, we, we, they're, they're still going. And um, we're hoping that we can uh, get them to connect. Often markets are slow at first. Uh, so I hope that that's the story, that it's just a slow beginning. But let me say what we have. Maybe it's a good down-to-earth way to illustrate the value of options. I, I was telling you how to price options, but I didn't tell you why would you buy one. Well, I did tell a story. At the beginning, I, I talked about an investor wanting to invest money in options uh, and, and a writer uh, hoping that the option will expire unexercised and hoping to make money. But I didn't really go behind that. and, and Emphasize why you would do that. So I, I think the the example of a home price option is is very uh, easy to see. Uh, and let's consider a situation that someone. I, I don't think any of you are homeowners here, right? <laughs> At this point, maybe some of you are, <laughs> probably not. Uh, but imagine, try to imagine that you bought a house a couple years ago, okay? Uh, and now the housing market is collapsing. Uh, you know, you bought that house probably on a mortgage, so you borrowed 80 or 90 percent, or maybe even more, of the money to buy the house. And uh, now the home price is falling, and you're thinking, "Hey, wait a minute, this house is worth less than my debt," uh, and you start to get upset. You're th you, you know, you're thinking, "Well, you know, I'd like to move to another city," but then you realize, "I can't do it. I, if I sell my house." I won't be able to pay off the mortgage. I'll be bankrupt uh, before I, I can't move. I mean, this is very real. In fact, uh, Economy.com, a, a consulting firm, estimates that in the United States today, 10% of all homes are underwater in that sense. The mortgage debt is greater than the value of the home. And that number is increasing every day as home prices continue to fall. So some people are very upset. Uh, so what can they do? Well, one thing they can do, or they could have done a couple of years ago if they, if, if, if they had uh, thought to do it, they could buy a put on, the home, uh, on homes in the city where they have a house, right? So I, hone, I, I put in, say, around, let's say I put in $500,000 into uh, a house, and um, I'm worried that its price might fall. Well, if you buy a house and you buy a put on that house, Together, the two together uh, eliminate your risk. So if I let's think of it as just buying a put on a house rather than on an index. Uh, I I buy the house for five hundred thousand. I put up four hundred thousand, and so um, I put up one hundred thousand. The mortgage puts up four hundred thousand. I'm underwater if the house drops a hundred thousand dollars. Right? I've lost uh, my mortgage debt exceeds my. I don't want that to happen. 
So why don't I just buy a put on the house, which is a right to sell the house at $400,000 uh, until some exercise date, right? Then I can't possibly be underwater. If I ever decide to move, if it's an American option, uh, I can just if, if the price of my house is less than four hundred thousand, I'll just exercise my put. There's no way for me to get wiped out. In fact, I could buy a put at four hundred and fifty thousand, uh, and that way I would always be sure that I have fifty thousand dollars left. So that's the idea of using options as a hedging uh, mechanism, and. Uh, uh, while I gave an example in terms of real estate, and it's not widely used that way, this same idea is used a lot by investors in, in other uh, domains. So I think options have a very real risk management uh, purpose. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, an insurance contract is like a put option. If I buy fire insurance on my house, then uh, it's like buying a put option on my house. But it's only exercisable if there's a fire. <laughs> so what it says is, if my house burns down, the put option I can sell the whatever remains uh, at, at, a, at a price which is determined by the insurance contract. It's the same as a put option. So uh, insurance is uh, not fundamentally different from finance. And so we've had a little trouble uh, deciding whether we want home equity insurance or just puts, uh, home equity puts. So we've created the puts. Uh, at some point, we want to also create uh, insurance uh, on homes. Someday, I hope that happens. Uh, there is no home equity insurance, but um, but these are just different incarnations of the same risk management ideas. The fundamental idea here in finance is that you can create the, uh, options. Are example of derivatives. I should add that um, a derivative. Is a financial contract that derives from another financial. So, an option is a derivative because the price of the option in the options market depends on the price of something else in another market, the stock market. And so, our real estate options are another example of derivative. The price of the put option depends on, in the option market, depends on the price of the house in the housing market. Uh, so, one of the themes in my forthcoming book, which I'm writing right now, <coughs> is that derivatives are like insurance. They're fundamentally important risk management vehicles, and they could have helped prevent the subprime crisis that we're now in if they had just gotten more established and more developed. 